Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an LA County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We're recording this on Monday, April 11th, 2022. And today we are joined by Julie Grant, a former prosecutor, trial expert, and award-winning legal journalist. And you may know her as a host on Court TV. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Josh. Great to be with you. This is exciting for me. Oh, good, good. Um, before we jump in, and I, I, I know you're going to have some really good insights on these cases because you cover them every single day and you know exactly oh, what's going on. Very kind. Um, you have such a, a very interesting story about how or what led you to become a lawyer. W could you share that with us? Sure, I'd be glad to. So maybe it's um, being a Gemini, I don't know, but I always had an interest in both journalism and law. And as a young kid, I, I never was quite sure how to be able to do both. And so I can remember like, years ago, sitting in the office of one of my college professors and saying, you know, he was one of my uh, broadcast journalism professors, and I was saying, I really do want to go to law school at some point, but don't quite know when. And I remember him saying, oh, you could be on Core TV someday. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be so cool? And, uh, you know, here we are. But what I wound up <laughs> doing um, you know, after that conversation with him was I went and I worked for my hometown television station, really great NBC affiliate in Steubenville, Ohio, that is a small station that really runs itself like a big station. Everybody comes out of there really well trained. And I, I really had to uh, prove myself to get in there. It wasn't easy to land a job there. It was really tough. It was really competitive at the time. And so, you know, started out as like a temporary freelance and temporary, then finally got an anchor job. And, and then after a few years anchoring their morning show and reporting on their noon show where I would cover the court cases and be on the kind of crimes, courts, cops beat unofficially, but I wound up doing a lot of that. I really had my interest peaked in the law and in trial work and especially public service. I, I kept thinking what those lawyers do day in and day out, the ones that serve as prosecutors and public defenders. And I thought, oh, I really think I want to go to law school. So I wound up leaving that job to then go back to school full time um, because I, I really wanted to be a better journalist, wanted to be uh, as smart as I could be. And I thought if nothing else, law school is going to make me smarter. I, I never really thought I would practice, but then kind of got bit by the trial bug, so to speak, because they recruited me for the trial team, as you can imagine, because of a TV background. Sure, sure. So, um, so wound up um, doing that. And it, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of a shock to my parents because I had this job that I really, really wanted in, in broadcast journalism. And then suddenly I'm like, you know, I think I want to go to law school. And my, I remember my mother saying like, that's wonderful, honey, but are you sure you want to leave this? And, you know, and remember my dad, you know, who's um, not very opinionated at all when it comes to, you know, like choices and things when it comes to my career. And, and I remember saying, Dad, what do you think? And he said, I think we need a Tom Hagen in the family, honey. I think law school would be a good idea I like that. for you. Nice little Godfather like reference. Oh, for yeah. Your, your <laughs> listeners, Josh, <laughs> and the movie. Yeah, so it became the Tom Hagen of the family. I love that. I love that. That takes guts, though. I'll tell you. I mean, oh, okay. I know how competitive uh, those networks can be sometimes. And to be able to walk away from that, and it obviously worked out, but I'm sure there were some times where you thought, am I doing the right thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so hard when, when you try to work so hard to get one of those jobs. And even at a small market station, TV 
news can be really, really competitive. And at the sure. time, there were a lot of really talented people that were also working there. And you really have to prove yourself and show that you're smart and can um, work well and do great storytelling and be flexible. And so, yeah, it was kind of I mean, a really big switch to then go back to being a student. But I kind of felt like I don't want to get too old and too tired to go to law school you know? <laughs> right. it's really you know not something for the weary and and you know that my gosh you're you're the one with the impressive career uh-huh. josh ritter wow uh oh, well, we're also you. impressed with you at court tv and always love when you come on our shows as a guest we fight oh, well, over thank you. you thank you thank you yeah. <laughs> good to hear um all right well l- let's jump right in the the first sure. case we're going to talk about is uh one of those stories where it's of course you know the truth is stranger than fiction and 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 i i mean all the puns intended here because we're talking about nancy crampton brophy and she is the romance novelist who's on trial for the murder of her husband dan brophy was shot in june of 2018 at the oregon culinary institute in portland where he was a chef and professor he was found bleeding on the floor by his students, and this is interesting, with no sign of a robbery or forced entry. Nancy Brophy was arrested in connection with the killing in September of 2018. There are reports that the couple struggled financially. Dan had a life insurance policy worth nearly $1.5 million. And in 2011, Nancy authored a blog post entitled How to Murder Your Husband, of course, right? Now, interestingly, the judge has not uh, permitted that to be used as evidence in the trial. Um, There is evidence that she researched and purchased ghost guns. These are the types of guns that are unregistered, uh, supposedly untraceable. And reportedly, she swapped, and this was also very diabolical, she swapped the slide and barrel of the murder weapon with an identical mechanism that she had purchased on eBay, thus having a gun, as long as she disposed of that barrel, that wouldn't match any ballistics, but she could still provide the police with the gun that they knew that she had purchased. Uh, One little interesting side note in our research was that the Brophys had a wedding ceremony in 1997 and filed joint taxes, but weren't legally married until shortly before uh, Daniel Brophy's uh, murder. Okay, so let's jump right in. I want to get just kind of your thoughts on the case because this case is so interesting to me. It's one of those where people will call it, it's a who done it, but it's really closer to a who else could have done it, right? That's kind of the way the prosecution's putting it together. What have your thoughts been so far? Exactly, Josh. If not Nancy Brophy, then who? That is really what the state of Oregon is saying about all this. And I know there is no burden whatsoever on the defense. I know they don't have to put on a shred of evidence. I know Nancy Brophy is cloaked in the presumption of innocence. And you know all of this so well, especially because of your practice doing criminal defense work. But I really think in order to successfully defend this at trial, there has to be a then who shown to this jury. Somebody wanted this beloved man dead. And something I think you'll think kind of is fascinating, Josh, our crews have been there since this trial began. And so our incredible reporters, uh, crime and justice reporter Matt Johnson, legal correspondent Julia Janae, their field team partners, videographers, film producers, they're all digging in. And what they're finding in the Portland area is that Dan Brophy was the one who was beloved. Dan Hmm. Brophy was the one who was well-known. Dan Brophy was a name in Portland. Nancy Brophy, 
not so much. The first day when Matt Johnson was out there, he started covering this trial from the beginning and then Julia Janae picked it up. She's there now still. Uh, but he went there and he went looking in the used bookstores to try to see if her books were anywhere to be found. Couldn't find a thing. Wow. And so I have a little bit of a theory. Uh, if you want, I'm, I'm, I'd love to share please, it with the listeners. Please, yeah. I think if the state wants to be successful in this prosecution, I think they have to pinpoint a motive really hard. And I know they pinpoint money to a degree. They were saying that because of all these multiple life insurance policies that Nancy Brophy had out on her husband's life that she stood to gain $1.5 million. I think it's more than money. I think the motive, if I were the state, should be fame. Because in order to get that fame, I think she would be wanting to use that money. Uh, so I'm not saying the money wasn't connected. If I'm the state, I would say it was. But it seemed to me like this woman had really invested a lot of time and energy on developing this career that really never took off. And for some reason, there was this sick fixation with marriage and her marriage and her spouse and with with committing a homicide. I mean, of all the things you can write about, Josh, you know, I, I don't know. Right. She had to choose this. I, I mean, yeah. her, her, her chosen uh, topic for all these varying books and, and things she wrote. So I think that it seems to me, based on what our teams are telling us who are on the ground there, that that Daniel Brophy was the beloved one. Daniel Brophy is who had so many friends, so many students who admired him, and people are just devastated because it's such a foodie town in Portland. Um, mm -hmm. Americans who haven't been right. to Portland may not realize like that's where the food trucks were born. It's a place where um, the culinary world is thriving and always has been. And so he was somebody, I think that's kind of something that may get lost in the trial. It's it's sensational, you know, the romance novelist murder trial, right. but it also has to do with this man who was really, really loved. And this woman who seems to me, uh, if I'm the state, was really seeking a lot of attention. Yeah, that's very interesting. I had not heard that angle before. Uh, I like that, that take on it. it because I, I'll tell you too, and motive is something that you talk about. And we, we always talk about how the state does not have to prove motive. And we're going to talk about that in another case that we consider today, too. And that's true. But I always think, and especially in a case like this, that it's a mistake to just rely upon that. And if you're standing in front of a jury at closing argument and the, you're saying, no, I don't have to prove motive to you, I think you're you're losing them. That you, you need to give them something to hang their hat on. And it's so interesting that you point that out in this case here because they keep on coming back to, well, there was a million point five uh, life insurance policy. I'm not saying that's not a lot of money. That, that's a lot of money. But is it murder money? I mean, if we're talking $20 million, maybe you could understand people start researching ghost guns and, and, and you know, <laughs> sneaking up behind your husband or something. But 1.5, it doesn't seem like that compelling an interest. But maybe with the angle you're talking about, maybe that maybe that is it. Who knows? That's an excellent point. And I think you're right. Um, both points you made, that one and, and then the former with if you can have a strong motive offer it anytime you can do that. I, I know, I'm sure if you hearken back upon your time as a prosecutor, and I'm just thinking one case just kind of jumped out at me as you were talking, Josh, thinking about how I remember struggling doing a case and not knowing, I mean, and none of us knew what the motive was. This was so heinous. And I remember talking to the detectives about it. And um, I had a companion case. It was a, um, 
not to digress too, too far, but it was a, a brutal stabbing case and there was the dismemberment of a corpse and there were two people who were involved oh, wow. in um, uh, abusing the corpse after the fact, um, the person who murdered uh, the, the, the victim and then another friend. And so I was enlisted to prosecute the friend and a colleague of mine in my office was prosecuting uh, the murderer. And I remember we met, we met so much, we talked this out and like, there was no reason that this poor victim should have been stabbed. I mean, it was like, nobody knew what it was. And I remember being so troubled by that as one of the advocates as part of this case, thinking like, oh gosh, is the jury gonna be troubled by this? They weren't, I mean, they convicted him so fast as they should have, it was horrible. But um, yeah, it, it's, if you can offer it, do it to your point, right? Cause you don't want those jurors back there in the room wasting time guessing, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you understand legally why it's not required, but people mm -hmm. are people and people naturally want to know the why. And if you don't provide them with a why, I think you're gonna lose the jurors. And I yeah. and and who knows if that ends up being a problem in this case, we'll, we'll mm -hmm. have, we're gonna find out soon enough, I guess. Okay, so turning now to another strange one, uh, Michael Barrisone. Uh, this is the uh, former Olympian in horse dressage, which I never had heard of before, but it's this kind of elaborate <laughs> horse riding that involves kind of like dance or something, I guess you would say, right? right. Uh, he he shot Lauren Kanarek twice in the chest and fired at her fiance, Robert Goodwin. And this was at Barrisone's uh, horse farm in Long Valley, New Jersey. Uh, Bearson, who was uh, also Canarek's former trainer, she was into this horse dressage co uh, uh, competing, um, said that she was behind on rent. And then there was also evidence that Canarek uh, testified that she, um, how Bearson was a bullying in behavior and that pr prior to the shooting, uh, he had made comments to her about sleep with one eye open. Uh, his defense has not contested that Barrison uh, pulled the trigger, but they have asserted that he was suffering from temporary insanity uh, after a months-long dispute uh, and that his mental uh, state uh, felt threatened. Um, at, at one point, it looked, too, like they were putting together an alternative theory of self-defense, but the judge is not going to instruct on self-defense, so they're going to have to go in with this uh, temporary insanity. And... To that end, Barrison has appeared very frail and restless in court, which I'd like to hear your thoughts on, which is a, a, a very different uh, change from his normal demeanor as a, as a six foot three former Olympian. So, uh, first of all, what are your thoughts on the judge throwing out the self-defense argument, meaning he's not going to give that instruction to the jurors? Right. I actually think it worked out well for the defense, Josh, even though they didn't intend for it to happen that way. And this is why I don't think for the defense it works at all to present both a self-defense case and a not yeah. guilty by reason of insanity case. Yeah. It's like they just don't go together. It's um, because, and you know this so well, if you're going to say you acted in self-defense to defend yourself or defend someone else, You've got to know what you're doing and understand right. the facts around you. Whereas insanity, it's exactly the opposite. You, you don't know, you don't understand, you can't appreciate your actions and, and the why and, and what. So it's it's just, I, I was confused from the outset that defense counsel put forward both of these. Um, and especially because I'm thinking, well, you've got to pick one because you don't want that jury struggling with what we're talking about right now on your podcast 
thinking, well, these don't exactly seem to go together legally. And then also thinking, well, which one was it? No, tell them what it was, commit to it, marry it, stick to it, embrace it throughout the whole trial. That's your legal theory. And for me, I think the insanity defense is so much stronger uh, to the point you just made. I mean, my gosh, Michael Barrison looks terrible. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in a disparaging way. I'm saying that in the most empathetic, understanding way possible that I hope he gets the mental health treatment that he needs. Because here you have this Olympic champion who became a coach and was respected and beloved, driven to the point that he was in such a state of despair that he couldn't function anymore. And here you see him in the courtroom looking like he can barely function. And so I I think the way this case has played out. I think the judge made the right call. As you know, Joshua, the defense has that burden of production. They never get the right. burden of proof. The burden of proof always stays with the state, but the burden of production to show that he acted in self-defense has to be met in order to get the instruction. And the court felt that that burden of production wasn't quite met, uh, but the burden of production was met on the insanity defense. So the jury has heard that and um, is going to be deliberating that. So I think it kind of worked well for counsel. I think this is just so much stronger because that self-defense argument was messy too with the facts of this. I mean, this was something terrible happened with this brawl between the three of them and the dog. We know Michael Barrison was bitten by this dog and it's hard to know who attacked whom first. It's really very unclear. So I think this whole narrative the defense is putting on that these two alleged victims were basically mean squatters who wouldn't leave and thought it was more fun to torture him. I think that bodes more well for them anyways. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree with you. I thought it was a mistake. Listen, uh, sometimes defense attorneys will have alternate arguments, right? You know, if, you, yes. if my guy didn't do it, but if he did do it, you know, here's an excuse why. And you can understand that sometimes a little bit of confusion works for the defense. You know, they maybe they just throw enough at the wall. Something sticks with a couple of the yeah. jurors. But but you make such a good point here that those are diametrically opposed defenses. I mean, you're right. In one sense, you're saying he was so out of his mind, he couldn't even appreciate what he was doing and the consequences of it. Oh, and if you don't buy that, well, then he absolutely appreciated everything he was doing because he was acting in self-defense because he was so afraid for his own life. And you just you're right. You can't do both. And and I agree with you that there seems to be more evidence. You know, there's these weeks of buildup of where you could maybe see a couple of jurors buying the idea that maybe this guy just a, a screw went completely loose at that last minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can see how it happened. I mean, just the buildup and. And I think when, you know, as lawyers, like we get how stressful trials can be. And even though we, you know, have uh, practiced, you're currently practicing in the civil, uh, in the criminal world, excuse me. um, And that's where I practice. The civil world can be so crazy stressful, you know, and the litigation, you usually hear that word attached to the civil or the litigation, you know, when you're getting papered to death is how I like to think of it. You don't know what's coming in the mail today. I mean, it's, it can be awful. And so, I think he kind of felt trapped, like he's suing them in the civil court. He's trying to get them off his property and the police can't do anything about it because it's not criminal and he's calling police. He's in such a state of despair. When you really lay it out, it's, it's like, and then you, you think, why didn't they leave? Why didn't right, they leave? Right. Why didn't they want to get away from this? It, it just doesn't smell right. I, I think 
their narratives to me uh, they stink a little bit. When I was watching yeah. their testimony, I, I thought, hey, this doesn't really pass the smell test uh, for yeah. me. Trying to watch objectively, if we, you know this, Josh. We call balls and strikes at court duty. We don't have a horse in the race. Uh, no pun intended. My gosh, right. I did not mean to <laughs> well say that done, with this yeah. case. I say that with every case. Uh, but here, it's just all the more fitting. Uh. Well, that should be that, that we might even have a verdict in that case uh by the time this this podcast airs it's it they're they've finished right. closing our arguments right I, they're, they're just correct. waiting on the jurors wow yeah You're correct. So that, we were be... getting set up for this podcast yeah they they finished the judge instructed them and um we just i'm just getting a note in right now that they're going to go back on the record super before the judge oh wow the jury for the Interesting. day so uh yeah we'll we'll see breaking, Maybe this breaking news yeah when this, when this goes to air <laughs> Another one that we could have a verdict any day now is uh, Dr. William uh, Husel. And this is the trial of the doctor charged with 14 counts of murder for his treatment of patients while serving at, in the ICU at Mar Mount Carmel Hospital in Grove City, Ohio. He's accused of essentially over-prescribing fentanyl and other medications which hasten the deaths of the patients. And it, it's important though to keep in mind that these were patients nearing death as it was i mean they were they were close to within hours of you know if not days of of passing themselves um the original case focused on 25 deaths but in january the prosecution dismissed 11 charges to focus on patients who had received 1000 micrograms of fentanyl which is a very high dose we're learning and other medications uh, last week, and this was kind of a breaking thing last week, a, an affidavit of disqualification was filed by the defense to remove Judge Michael Holbrook from presiding over the case. Uh, it, the affidavit was under seal. We don't know what it, it said, uh, but we do know that it was denied and closing arguments proceeded forward. I, I want to talk first. Let's talk about that bombshell filing and, and help people to understand just how rare a thing it is uh, about this affidavit of disqualification could you can you fill us in a little bit on what was happening here i'll do my best josh i yeah. wish i knew more to share yeah. with, with your listeners and viewers what was tough was because this was put under seal so we right. couldn't see it and so we were relying heavily on what the local newspaper the columbus dispatch was reporting so anything we had shared um that was i think they got the most scoop on this case just through some source reporting uh, we had, of course, cited them and credited them for that digging. But um, it, it is very rare, as you know, yeah. to have attorneys filing a motion while the trial is going on to have the trial judge disqualified. So they what yeah. was essentially reported here was that this motion and affidavit in support of the motion to disqualify the trial judge was filed with the Ohio Supreme Court. So going way above the trial judge's head here. Uh, and the Columbus Dispatch was reporting through source reporting that it was the defense team that had filed this um, through, uh, I guess, the basis that was reported. I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but what they said was that when it came time for the defense to choose to present a defense, and we know they have no burden, there's no expectation, whether they present a shred of evidence or not, cannot be commented on, can't be held against them. Um, same as, you know, with the defendant's right to testify, every defendant enjoys that right. Uh, it cannot be held against them. If, in this case, Dr. Husel chose not to, and the defense wasn't as robust as I think many people expected it to be. Right. Uh, there was one expert witness that was presented, 
and um, I believe the judge made um, some kind of comment to the effect that this was a tactical decision to not present more. Something about a tactical decision was the quote that was put out in the local paper there. And um, apparently uh, there was issue taken with that, but it was hard for us because we weren't able to read this and know exactly what it said, know exactly what was, was argued and how they felt that that might have in some way prejudiced their case. But as you noted, you know everything moved forward. Uh, this was was denied. Uh, we saw the closing arguments playing out, and I guess the one thing I was kind of left thinking, it, when it comes to whether you know or, or not a defense uh, could have been presented, should have been, even though there is no expectation under the law. Josh, I kept thinking that Dr. William Husell could help himself yeah. by giving testimony in this one. Do you think yeah. the same thing? Oh, yeah. I- Absolutely. I, I, you know, it's always so such a rare um, a st- strategy by a defense attorney to want to put their own client on. Usually, usually that's never the case, right? Right. But with this type of a client, where he's got no criminal history, I, from what I understand, he was very adored by the the community, Correct. and he can go up there and explain. I was just trying to help these people, and yeah, maybe I'm giving them more drugs than other doctors would have. But you know, uh, we can agree to disagree that there's different ways that you can, uh, you know, uh, give this kind of end of life care. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it would have added some humanity to the whole thing for him, and it was a surprising move. Um, as is as is this move to challenge the judge. I just I don't get it. I mean, it happens. Every once in a while, uh, you people will challenge a judge before anything begins because they feel that that judge is somehow uh, not the right fit for their case or something. But to do this right before closing arguments, the judge's job is done, right? Any any effect he could have had on the case is in, almost over. It's now just arguments and instruction. So I was wondering, is this kind of a shot across the bow of the judge or were they preserving something for appeal? I don't know. Uh, and and we're dealing with with Jose Baez here, who is no you know rookie to these types of big cases. I mean, he handled Casey Anthony's case, you know, famously to acquittal and he represented Aaron Hernandez. Um, weird, a weird couple of choices. I agree with you on the on the challenging and then not putting his client on. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on the on the case itself? Do you think that the the prosecutions met their burden? That's tough. And the reason for me, well, for a couple of reasons, it's a tough case for them to meet their burden. I think in general, and also we've had so many trials going at once. If I'm being totally honest, I want to be yeah. you know on your yeah. show with your listeners. So there have been times when we ha- we haven't been able to broadcast you. So on our air, it's gone right. on our live stream or. Um, we haven't been able to stream it. So I, there are parts of it I, I was not able to see. But um, I, I will say this. I This one, I, I found it kind of troubling from the outset for a number of reasons. And don't get me wrong. It is awfully tragic that these people lost their lives. Um, don't get me wrong. My heart breaks for anyone uh, who lost their loved one in a situation where they feel they weren't given the proper medical attention or mistreated uh, my heart goes out to all of them here uh, to the point you made when you were introducing this part of the podcast josh is that these were patients that he saw in the intensive care unit that's where they were so context is really key in this one for me this is 
you know, as you pointed out, some of them, you know, they're on ventilators. Some of them, I, I mean, these are last ditch efforts to make them comfortable at a time um, that is that is critical. It um, arguably is the end of their of their lives. Um, and again, I say arguably because you know, the state's taken a different position on this one, but this one was played out in civil court already. I mean, like this, there were so many lawsuits, so much money paid out. I, I don't know. I, I haven't been privy to all the evidence in this case. I mean, I would love to see everything that the state reviewed when they made the decision to want to go after him and prosecute him because I'm I'm just not sure that it, it belongs in, in criminal court. I found a yeah. lot of the testimony very hard to follow. Um, it, it's hard for anyone to understand. I'll be the first one to admit. I mean, many times I'm listening and you're hearing about the micrograms of fentanyl and unless you're somebody like who spent your career in the DEA or, you know, in the hospital and you're administering it, that's it, something it's really hard to understand the quantity, the lethality. And um, it's just doctor did so much good in his life and he's an award-winning doctor now suddenly finds himself on trial. And when there were so many other people involved in the administration yeah. of medications in these things, I, uh, the whole thing, I, I don't think is very clear cut. I think, the state really took a chance on on this one. And um, I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if it goes either way, because, again, I didn't see the entirety of the testimony. I wish I had been able to. But I, I was disappointed that he didn't testify, because I think that someone so smart like that could get up there and really explain the situation and go patient by patient and say, look, I remember this woman. I remember the condition she was in. What you didn't hear was this about yeah. her. And, do you mean, I think just to hear him kind of be a human and be like on the same level as anybody on the jury, uh, You, I mean, I would want to be spoken to like I'm five years old if I was on that jury, like really dumb it down right, for me, right. help me to understand what you did and why. And I, I kind of feel like this, Josh, when you're on the defense side, all you need is one to hang yeah. a jury. And I, I if, if they get a hung jury, I can't see the state going back after yeah. him again. I mean, the resources to spend, they ought to just let it go. Uh, in, in my view, if it doesn't go the way they want it to. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's yeah. kind of my take. No, I, those, those are all super solid points. I agree with everything you're saying. I, I, yes, I, again, anytime there's people dying and, and, and perhaps there are reasons why they didn't need to die the way they did or at the time that they did, your heart obviously goes out to all of those victims' families. But... Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think this was a, a mistake to bring this prosecution. I, I I wonder about the precedent that it's setting with the message that it's sending to the medical community. I mean, if you're a doctor, if there was a law that said you cannot give a thousand micrograms of fentanyl, okay, I could understand that. He broke the law. But from what I was hearing, there's kind of a lot of diverse thought on what is too much and what is, you know, why, well, I don't do that as a doctor. We heard a lot of experts say, but some of them could understand it, you know? And then just to go back to a point that we were talking about earlier, where's the motive here? Why? What, yes. if, he, if he was doing yes, this, gosh. why? Why be doing this to these people? And again, I think the prosecution is going to have a real tough time if that's all they're standing there telling the jurors in closing arguments is we don't have to prove motive. They're going to have to give these jurors something to hang their hat on if they want them to convict this doctor. Do you agree? Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. I think that yeah. is so key. And I think throughout the weeks and weeks of this, I'm glad you brought it up because I absolutely forgot about this. They never pinpointed a motive. Yeah. The state did not pinpoint a motive. and. They, they really could have come up with 
I mean, so many different things that they could have said. And and I think for if you're on the jury, you're going to be like, okay, look, you're hearing testimony about this guy being well respected, a great teacher, an award winner, practicing for years and years, and like, why would he want to kill people when, yeah. when he takes that oath to help people and has helped so many people? And even some of the testimony cut both ways. I can remember some of. The family members getting up there testifying for the state and talking about things he said to their loved ones that were very compassionate and kind and helpful. So, yeah, I, I think that's really lacking here. That's a really great point for this jury to send this doctor uh, to prison, essentially. I'm right. sure, you know, they can, even though they're not charged with punishing him, that, that would be up to the court to dole out a punishment if he's convicted. You would think they would want to know why he did what the state is accusing yeah. him of doing. Some, some, something to answer that why question, and they just haven't done it. And so I, I, I sit here as you do, finding myself just kind of confused as to why this was brought as a prosecution. But well, then uh, turning to the last case we're going to talk about, but it will be on court TV, I'm sure, uh, from morning till night, every single day for the next few <laughs> weeks, is Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Uh, they are set to square off in Fairfax, Virginia for a massive defamation suit. Depp alleges that Heard defamed him in an opinion piece she wrote about domestic violence that was published in the Washington Post. And even though uh, Depp was not named in the op-ed, he claims that it caused him to lose out on a potential relaunch of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise with Disney, which we can only imagine what kind of money we would be talking about there. So six years after the divorce, this, there's a $50 million liable trial is opening on Monday the 11th uh, today. And the judge has allowed a video camera in the courtroom reportedly for the first time in Fairfax County. And the judge overseeing the trial has imposed a series of access rules to try to maintain decorum in the courthouse. Good, good, good luck with that. Uh, most significantly, neither Depp nor Heard are permitted to pose for photos or sign autographs while in the courthouse or on the courthouse grounds. Uh, amongst those who are potentials to testify are actor James Franco, a billionaire Elon Musk, and perhaps even Johnny Depp himself. Uh, <laughs> is this just a circus or is there something more serious here? What, do, what are your thoughts? Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, well, uh, where do I begin with this one? Um, so this will be a doozy. I mean, yeah. this will be a doozy to watch. So we've got these dueling defamation claims is essentially right. what is what is going on here. As you know, Josh, we've got the claim from Johnny Depp saying that Amber Heard defamed him when she wrote that article, that op-ed in the Washington Post, didn't name him, but under the law, that doesn't matter if he can prove the defamation case has, you know, has been set out through his lawsuit. Uh, but he says he was defamed by that. And then we've got the counterclaim from her saying there were statements made by Deb and through his counsel that are defamatory against her and the counterclaims for a hundred million. And so we've we've got a really, really ugly set of allegations between a couple that used to be in love and used to be married and a couple yeah. that have lived much of their lives in the public spotlight in Hollywood with lots of paparazzi around and lots of people taking notice of all their behaviors. And underneath it all, I, I do think there is something serious and I'm gonna be really curious to see just how it plays out through the trial is there are these allegations coming from both sides 
of domestic violence. And, you know, that's something, uh, of course, that's very serious, something that I think is so tough to talk about. It's a hard subject to breach. It's a really hard subject to understand. Um, I, I know those of us who've worked and served in, in the criminal justice system understand how frightening it really is. And I'm going to be curious to hear what comes out to that end underneath all this, because we, we know that in, in the civil world, truth is a defense to defamation. And yeah. so we've got these horrific abuse allegations coming you know, from both sides, and each side is going to be refuting them. And so I think we're going to hear some very, very ugly, nasty stories. And I also don't think what we're going to hear about is the, for lack of a better way of saying it, like the typical domestic violence dynamic where typically, and you know this, Josh, from serving as a prosecutor, you know, you have people who use violence against their intimate partners and they use it as the way to control them. They don't have an anger management problem. They use it as a way to exert power and control over their victim. And their victim is in love with them and loves them as a person, but wants the violence to stop. And it's not easy for them to get out of this dynamic because it happens slowly. It happens incrementally. Um, and I think what's really tough is, you know, with with these two, you're not hearing about it being one-sided, at least from what came out in the UK case, which was such a, a mess where he sued the son because they called him a wife beater. There was evidence presented, you know, on both sides of this that they both had uh, been violent with one another on more than one occasion. So I'll be curious to see what comes into evidence with this one and see if at the end, if it's clear that one or the other was the person using violence or if it's a situation of just two people who can't manage their anger, Um, not the typical domestic violence dynamic, but two people that are just explosive and a lot of this we know was fueled by drugs and alcohol and and rage and it seems a lot like these are people who need um better conflict resolution you know and perhaps needed you know i I don't know if either of them were undergoing mental health counseling but from the the evidence we saw so we kind of got a peek at this case as you know through that last one right uh, it was nasty just really nasty and and i said this i said before in court today i'll say it again it's amazing to me that nobody died i mean hearing about the instances between these two i mean it was so ugly so explosive so dangerous from what has been uh, come into court as evidence albeit not a u.s court but um court overseas the united kingdom where that first trial took place they, they are both very fortunate that this didn't end very badly so i you know i think they can both thank goodness um, they're alive and well today. And I don't know what they're both thinking they're going to gain with this, Josh. I really don't. Yeah. I, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze for either one of them. Yeah, that's such a good point. I w- One thing you, you talked about um, that I wanted to touch on is this this idea that in a defamation case, a defense is truth, right? So if if, yes. if 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 he's saying you defamed me, and she can prove that he in fact was abusive to her, then that's a, a defense to that. Which made me think, if you're his lawyers, you know this isn't like a criminal case where you can get kind of caught off guard by some evidence. They've had discovery, right? They've had depositions. Yes. They've had they've had interrogatories. They've been going at this, so they know everything that's coming out in this trial. And you got to be thinking they had had 
Johnny Depp's people must have gone through everything with a fine tooth comb to make sure there's no evidence of that if they're going to bring a lawsuit like this. Because that's absolutely what Hurd's team is going to do is try to make him look like a total uh, abusive person and use every bit of evidence that they can. And and I agree with you. Is the juice worth the squeeze here? Because talk about reputational harm. Everybody's going to end up with reputational harm at the end of this right. thing with the way with the 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 sound of it, right? The mm-hmm. the stories that you said from the previous case. Yeah. How does this how does this help repair his career? I have no idea. <laughs> that's exactly my thought. I, you know, and I and I wonder about the advising you know that's going on for for both of them. Yeah. Um, because you have to think when this is becoming, it's all becoming part of the public record. The media is all over this one because yeah. it's been such a spectacle. And, it, you know, it's very, very sad. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I look like like we've talked about before, Josh, you know, this you come on for TV regularly as uh, one of our favorite legal analysts. We call balls and strikes. We don't have a horse in the race. We don't have a dog in the fight. We are not Team Johnny. We are not Team Amber. We are just reporting the facts and the law and analyzing the testimony and the evidence as it comes in. And so for all of this to get to the point where they're each proving these defamation claims where, you know, you know, this judge to be an attorney when it's a public figure, you've got to prove that it was done with malice, meaning that they knew the statements about one another were false, but still they did it anyways. You know, right. you're right. All this ugly stuff has to come out and has to be public and part of the court record and part of the evidence and then be reported on. And then even if somebody does, you know, win this case, even if there's a judgment in favor of one or the other, you know, are they really the winner after everyone's right. heard it all and all of this ugliness? I mean, in civil court, you know, the burden is far less than, than criminal court. And so um, it's much easier to make out a case in in civil court than it is in criminal court. Even if they can make out their cases, I I don't know that I would want it out there. I mean, sometimes just being silent and quiet and private is the best way to kind of quash whatever might be swirling around out there. Uh, But, you know, it's their their right to choose otherwise. And uh, we're just glad our cameras can be there for it all because... In the United Kingdom, we weren't able to see it all. So it was tough, right? We just got like little pieces here and there we were able to examine. So here, start to finish, we will be there for it all, Josh. Our cameras will catch all of this. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both expected to um, There's uh There's not really. a clear winner or loser with them, but the, the real winner here is Court TV and your viewers because everybody's uh, going to be glued to their thanks. sets watching this thing for the next couple of weeks. Oh, thanks. Um, our viewers are, are very anxious. Yeah, yeah they're definitely into this one. We're looking forward to it. Um, Julie, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? for having me, Josh. Oh, I appreciate it. Uh, So uh, you can catch me any weekday, noon till 3. I should say uh, 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern time uh, is when I host the midday show on Court TV. And uh, you can always go to my website. It is juliegrantesq.com. And there there are links if any of your listeners want to talk more about any of this on social. Glad to do that as well. Oh, fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your question with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.